0: Welcome to the Love and Marriage Podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that offer insights on dating and marriage. Be sure to also check out our newly released podcast entitled By Study and By Faith, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Visit speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more details.
1: I've often thought that it's really a great thing that nobody ever recites your faults and failures when you stand up to talk. Otherwise we may be here for some time. <laughs> you know it's it's uh well it's quite a feeling to stand at the devotional pulpit at BYU. I have sat where you sat, listened to my heroes talk and thought about the other heroes who have stood here, Carl G. Mazur, Brigham Young, Spencer W. Kimball, and all the great people who have stood here. It cannot, uh, cannot be anything but humbling to try to occupy a position which they have filled so well and so nobly. I don't uh, flatter myself that I am called by the Lord to stand here, but at least He didn't prevent me from coming, and therefore (laughs) I'm going to be allowed to say something. Um, I I guess it's a good thing that you don't have to be perfect to talk about perfection, nor to be Christ-like to speak about Christ, or we wouldn't have very many sermons even from this pulpit. I wanted to talk today about the subject of—or the relationship between sacrifice and love. And first I thought, well, I'll call this talk uh, Sacrifice is the Proof of Love. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe sacrifice produces love. So maybe I'll call it Sacrifice is the Price of Love. And I'm still not sure just what the relationship is, but I can tell you this that you can't have love without sacrifice. And I don't mean someone sacrificing so you will love them. I mean you cannot love someone else unless you pay the price. You can't love the Lord. So we find all of these scriptures—and I'm not going to give you all of them—God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see how the sacrifice and love are tied together here. Whosoever forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple or contemplate the story of the young ruler—rich, accomplished, who comes to the Savior, throws himself at his feet, and said, Master, what shall I do to be perfect? And the Master said, Well, keep the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. And The young man said, these have I kept from my youth up. as the scripture says, And the Savior loved him. And he said, If thou wouldst be perfect, go and sell all thou hast, and come and follow me. And the rich young man went away sorrowing, because he had much. President Lincoln was informed by the Secretary of War that a certain Mrs. Bixby had lost five sons in the Civil War, and he was moved and troubled by this immense, enormous event that had happened in her life. And He wrote several drafts of a letter to her and tore them up and threw them away, and some of them are still kept, and we can see the interlineations and finally at least we have this as it was printed in his collection i feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming but i cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Sacrifice. He could see. What we ought to see when we look at America that it wasn't built up only out of resources and timber and coal and people that came here to escape their uh, oppressive governments. It was built on the individual sacrifices of millions of people so that when de Tocqueville came here to make his memorable tour and wrote the book about it, He was able to say, America is great because she is good. And One wonders as one looks around how long can this greatness last when so few seem to be willing to pay the price, when ten to twenty percent of the young men Will not even fill out an application or fill out a registration for the draft and justify it on conscience grounds. I don't mean to be critical of, of those who choose not to fight because of belief, because I believe that the American system can embrace diversities of belief on this subject as on all others. But we need to ask ourselves. How can we survive if we do not love? If we do not love our country, if we do not love one another, if we do not strive upwardly, and pay the price of whatever it will cost to advance our society, our family, our religion? You know, I uh, when I finished at BYU, I finished in the spring, uh, at the end of the winter quarter, as we had quarters then. And I was not uh, going to go into the air force for about three months, so I looked around for something to do. Saw an ad in a paper and said they want people to work in the, mark, the, the Lark Mine. Well, I drove out there. The Lark Mine is underneath one of the mountains that surround the Kennecott Mine. And so I was hired. I went into this mine, got on a little train with a bunch of other people with. Hats with little lights on them, big, heavy boots, and we went into what to the mountain for a long time. Must have been two, three, four miles and Then we got out and we came to the shaft, and the shaft had a little car in it that accommodated nine people if you'd scrunched up like this, and it was on a cable and it Dropped you down that shaft at what seemed like a terrific rate of speed, and we went down four thousand feet below where we went into the mountain and it stopped fortunately <laughs> we got out, got on another little train, and went out to what they called was the face where the mining was being done, and then we got our shovels, and we shoveled all the ore that was laying there into the cars. The cars left, and we started drilling holes in the face. And when we got that done, we sat down and had a little bite to eat. Then we pushed dynamite, several sticks, in each one of these holes. Then someone who knew what he was doing came around and put fuses in all of these holes so that it would blow the middle out first and then the sides so it would work properly. Then we lit the fuse, got on the car, and headed back for the tunnel. Everybody lit the fuse at the same time at all the various faces. And when we got back into where we were to go up the shaft, we could hear the explosions of the thing coming. Now, that's not too important, I guess, except what I learned there. I met people there men with five, six, seven, ten, fourteen children who were going every day into this black hole. I knew I was going to get out and become an Air Force pilot and fly in the sun. Every day in this black hole, day after day, five days a week, year after year, suffering danger, unremitting toil, boredom—and for what? For those kids and that wife. For that, to get them out of that hole. Well, that's sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't paying your tithing or going to church on Sunday or filling a temple assignment, although that's a little bit of the price of love. But it's being somewhere where you're needed, where you've got to serve, when you'd rather be somewhere else. Do something else. Don't you think those men would have just as soon sat on a mountaintop playing a guitar and singing a few happy songs and not worrying about where the next meal is coming from and whether Johnny can get braces on his teeth? How about the wives, what sacrifice are they making? Do you think that women choose, at the highest of all accomplishment, to take their master's degree in physics and go home and change a dirty diaper, cook a meal, sweep the floor, make the beds? You don't think that's sacrifice and you don't know what sacrifice is well in the 13th chapter of hebrews and also in james the second chapter there are discourses about faith and how people showed that they had faith and some of them examples are the same rahab the harlot Abraham sacrificing Isaac, uh, Moses giving up all the riches of Egypt to be with his people, and they list all these other things that prove that these men have faith. Well, I, I'm saying, well, maybe it proves that they had love for the Lord, that there is nothing that they would withhold from him. And I'd like to look. At the sacrifice of Abraham for just a minute. It seems so easy when we read it on the page, you know. The Lord came and said, Abraham, and uh, He said, You've done all I've asked you to do, and now I've got this thing I want you to do. Take your son Isaac, your only son, whom thou lovest. And offer him as a sacrifice. Well, can you, can you imagine what Abraham felt there? How long did he wait to get Isaac? The Lord promised him several times when he left his home in Ur, when he left Haran, when he came in to the land of Palestine, or Israel, when he did each of the things which he did at the Lord's request. The Lord said, Well, you're going to have a posterity that will be numerous as the sands of the sea, and it's going to bless all nations. And through that lineage, the Savior will come. And after a 100 years of waiting, finally, the angel came to him and said, You're going to have a son. And even Sarah couldn't believe it, because she was very old, long past the age of childbearing. And after all this miracle, and after everything's being fulfilled, and life is good, and he loves this boy with all his heart, the Lord comes and said, "Well, I'm going to take the thing that you love the most." And he gathered up his sticks of wood, took his servants and his son, who might take to be either a late teenager or in early twenties, and they go to the foot of the of the mount. And he tells the servants to stay there, loads the wood for the sacrifice upon his son's back, and they start to ascend the mount. And eventually, his son says, Dad, um, where's the sacrifice? Where's the animal? And Abraham can't tell him right now. He says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. They go on up. Can you imagine the sacrifice that Isaac is willing to make? His father explains it to him. He doesn't conk this hundred-year-old man on the head and say, You're crazy. I'm going down the hill. He allows himself to be bound and placed upon the altar. He is willing to give the sacrifice of love as well and obey his Father, though it cost him his life. And Finally, as the knife is upraised and starts its descent, only then does the Lord say, It's enough. You haven't even withheld from me, your son. Well, it's hard in words to try to explain those feelings. And So with with an apology to the music department, I found that uh, sometimes in song and poetry we can get closer to the heart of meaning than we can get with express words. I'm going to sing a song for you. This song is from the musical Lost in the Stars by Maxwell Anderson and Kurt Weill. It's based on a book, Cry the Beloved Country, by Alan Payton. When this song is sung, the old Negro minister, black minister, Stephen Kumalo, has gone to to Johannesburg to try to find his son, who has been missing for a long time. He went to Johannesburg to work in the mines, hasn't heard from him. And he searches over. The city for Absalom, his son. And as he's searching, he begins to hear of a crime which has been committed. A white man has been murdered by some intruders. And irrationally, his anxiety about his son begins to be coupled with a fear that somehow his son is involved with this murder. And his heart is full of prayers. And he goes about, and finally he finds his son in prison, accused of this murder. And his son says, Father, I was wrong. I'm going to do no more evil. I'm not going to lie anymore. But his father has been told that if his son doesn't join in a lie that has been concocted by his accomplices, if he tells the truth, he will be hanged. And so the father, who has served the Lord all his days, finds himself in Abraham's dilemma. If he persists in the path of righteousness, his son will die. He goes out and he calls upon the Lord, using the name that he has used since childhood, an African word for God—Tiko. And so this song is called, Oh, Tico, Tico, help me. Oh, I will be accompanied by Carol Christ, who very kindly volunteered to come down in the middle of her day and do this for me.
2: have I come to hear at this crossing of pass shall he tell a lie and live or speak truth and die and if this is so what can I say to my son oh Tico Tico help me often oh, when he was young him and said, Speak truly, evade nothing what you have done, let it be on your head. And he heeded me not at all, like rain he ran through my hands, concealing as a boy will, taking what was not his evading commands, for he seemed to hear none of my words, Turning, twisting, he ran through a tangle of night and days till he was lost to my sight and ran far into evil and evil ways. And he was stricken and struck back, and he loved and he was desperate with love and fear and anger. And at last he came to this. O God of the humble and broken those who have nothing, nothing, nothing to this, to the death of a man, to the death of a man. had given to death, then my words came back to him, and he said, I shall do no more evil, tell no more untruths, I shall keep my father's ways, and remember them. And can I go to him now And say, my son, take care Tell no truth in this court Lest it go ill with you here Keep to the rules, beware And yet if I say again It shall profit a man though he gave Oh, Tika, Tika, help me. Oh, Tika, Tika, help me.
1: Now I want to, having... Talked a little bit about the quality of sacrifice, the payment for love. I want to look at something of our modern world, where we're going, and see if we can see our way a little bit. It ought to be obvious that a young man or young woman who pretends love in an effort to seduce cannot really love because he would be sacrificing what he wants for the better good he or she wants, for the better good of the person beloved. It follows that when we take an infant in our arms helpless, unable to feed itself, clothe itself, clean itself, and work and spend all of our time for this child, moving them up from infancy, clothing them, working for them, with them, striving through a thousand different church meetings and family gatherings and every other thing. It follows that we will love them has to be, and it turns out often that the worst child in the family is the most loved because their family has paid the greater sacrifice for that child. But the child has to learn to love, too. And when he doesn't pay any price, he doesn't learn to love. He doesn't serve. It seems like when we make an investment in something we value it we care for it we have the old bromide when you've made a bad bargain hug it all the tighter and so we we do that but you know the first time i ever knew how my father felt about me was when i took my baby jennifer in my arms And I said to myself, Dad held me like this. Dad knew the feelings I feel. And then I felt, why? Why didn't I know this? Why didn't I tell him how much it meant to me? Well. There was a recent case It's called Infant Doe. It took place in a Midwestern state. Infant Doe, you'll notice how legal people tend to divorce all passion, all emotion and meaning from things. We're calling him Infant Doe. This little child had parents who had names. I guess he never got a name. He was born a mongoloid child—retarded, but no one knows how severely because you don't find that out until you've had a chance to raise them and see whether they can learn and how much. But he also had a correctable defect. His esophagus was not connected to his stomach, and he couldn't eat. And so the doctor said, Well, we'll go in there do an operation and connect those things. It's a serious operation, but it can be done. The parents said, Wait a minute. This child is retarded. It would be better if he didn't live. So we don't want you to perform this operation. And, of course, the doctor could not without their assistance. So some well-meaning people said, Well, we'll go to court and get an order that forces him to let him have the operation. And they went to court. And to the disgrace of the American judicial system, the court said, we cannot order this. So Infant Doe died. What was his crime, his capital punishment? That he was retarded. And so now we're beginning to what was it that his parents didn't want? It would have been inconvenient, their lawyer said. Would have been inconvenient to raise this child. This child wouldn't have the same quality of life. What do we know about quality? Does a bird have no quality of life because it doesn't think like a man? Or is it a finished product, as the God of Heaven intended? What do we know about a retarded child's quality of life, unless we can be that child? But we do know the difference between life and death. So his parents never paid the sacrifice that they would have paid to learn to love infant doe. And who knows in the great sea of cause and effect what effect that one case has on the whole quality of the life of all the people in this generation even. We cannot afford—it's kind of like Ray Bradbury's story of the time traveler who goes back and blunders off. In the Paleolithic times, he blunders off of the path and steps on a butterfly, and that butterfly never grew up, never had children. And When he gets back to the time from which he left, everything has changed—and for the worst, I guess—because that one life was taken out. It's, It's Thoreau's concept that every deed goes into the great sea of cause and effect. And remains there throughout eternity. I read uh, an interview with a lady who uh, was suing her doctor because he allowed, he did not tell her about amniocentesis, and therefore she wasn't able to find out in advance that her baby was uh, a mongoloid child, and therefore she couldn't have an abortion and have it destroyed. In the interview, she said, Well, I'm glad that I know Tommy. I'm happy that I know Tommy, is what she said. But I would have been happy if I hadn't known him. I wonder, I wonder how long the reverberations of destroying that life might follow. When you, There must come a time when you must pay the price. The sacrifice of love. I was looking at a, an article in the Wall Street Journal about something called values clarification that's been offered for teaching in our schools for about 10 years. I don't mean in provost schools, but in schools throughout the country. What this says is that there really isn't any right or wrong or good or bad. It's what we say they are. And therefore, We shouldn't be imposing on children our moral standards and beliefs. They ought to make their own moral standards and beliefs. They ought to experiment around. And so they're saying, well, society shouldn't tell you what your sexual behavior ought to be, or whether premarital sex is wrong or right, or whether you ought to use drugs. You make up your mind after you've examined it for yourself. And so some 13, 14, 15-year-old child Not having the benefit of the experience of older and hopefully wiser heads is making up a set of values and acting on those values. And whenever their parents say, Well, what you're doing is wrong, he or she will say, You can't tell me that. That's your value judgment, not mine. No wonder John Taylor gave us such cautions about the kind of people we would choose to educate our children. <clears throat> well, I've got to wind this up, obviously. There could be a book written on this subject. probably has been. I, I would like to try to uh, encourage us to see the joy of love and sacrifice to find in the things that come to hand the work that must be done, the things that apparently the Lord assigns us, whether we want them or not, a situation where we can create love. Now, not what the world calls love, because that's been cheapened and destroyed, along with many other aspects of the language. So when they talk about love, they mean living together without benefit of marriage or sex Or something else. But that's not what the Lord means. And so maybe that's why the word charity was selected by the translators of the King James Version in the uh, uh, book of Corinthians. Remember what it says about love, charity, the perfect love of Christ, the love Christ has for us. It suffers long. And is kind. It vaunteth not itself. In other words, it doesn't advertise itself. It is not puffed up. It's not proud. Because pride is the love of self. All these qualities of love come from paying the price of service, of sacrifice. When... uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes was invited to address the 50th reunion of his Harvard Class of 1861. He reminisced back to the days when he was in the 20th Massachusetts Volunteers, a kid soldier serving in the Civil War. He told them what he learned from that service. I learned in the regiment and in the class. The conclusion, at least, of what I think the best service we can do for our country and for ourselves—to see as far as one may and to feel the great forces that are behind every detail, to hammer out as compact and solid a piece of work as one can, to try to make it first-rate, and to leave it unadvertised. Boy, if we could just pay those prices, we'd learn to love BYU because we would make something of ourselves. Every time I see one of the athletes, uh, particularly professional athletes, who does something really sensational, then lead the cheering as he goes around the stands, you know, jumping and leaping, I think about Oliver Wendell Holmes and his doing a compact job of work and leaving it unadvertised. Vaunteth not itself. Well. I don't want to leave the impression, however, that I think that life ought to be a dismal giving up of every good thing for the Lord. The Lord doesn't need our things. He doesn't need even our service. In fact, he told the Jews on one occasion when they were boasting about being children of Abraham— he could make children of Abraham out of the rocks on the ground. He doesn't need what we give. We need to give. Uh, when President uh, Joseph F. Smith wrote to one of his boys, he pointed out the joy of sacrifice one of his boys on a mission. You speak, my precious boy. Oh, I wish I could talk to my boys like that. My boys would really think I'd flipped my lid. <laughs> I called him Precious Darling or something, but he writes to him that way. You speak, my precious boy, of the sacrifice I am making in providing for my boys and for my family. Do you know what sacrifice means? Let me tell you. If after all I am doing or can do for the welfare and happiness of my loved ones, they should turn their backs upon me, should deny the faith, go to the bad, or bring disgrace or sorrow upon themselves or me or my family, then, indeed, would my labor of love become a sacrifice. But if my children will continue to love me, be true to themselves, and therefore to me and to our God, oh, then there is no sacrifice, though it cost all my worldly things and my life to boot. It will be all gain, all profit. I pray that the Lord of Heaven will give us an opportunity to profit in that way and to love as He loves I do it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Love and Marriage Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity. By study and by faith, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.